listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor Bill Carpenter. All right, with that, let's turn our hearts towards the hearing of the word of the Lord. We're going to be in Acts again this week in chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. Thank you, Pastor. Last week, we, uh, we talked about prayer, and uh, we're talking about things that make the church great. Uh, but in the context of talking about things that make the church great, we really want to be mindful that we're not trying to, to make a great church. We're trying to make God great in the church, okay, and through the church. And uh, so we're continuing on from where we left off uh, last Sunday, and uh, we're talking about uh, generosity today, all right? We're talking about how God not only expressed extravagant generosity through His Son, Jesus, but how He also calls us to the same. How we as the church are called to be that expression of generosity. And some of the implications of that as we are serving God and relating to one another in the body of Christ. And even how we approach the lost and and the poor outside of the church. So this morning we want to talk about uh, making the church great through generosity. All right, And uh, my goal is at the end of this service that you're deeply challenged as it concerns your particular possessions. All right, those things that belong to you, all right, and, and how you look at those, how you approach those. So in these messages that we are preaching right now from the book of Acts, and we will be continuing another Sunday or, or two, these messages are really examining this sort of incredible dynamic uh, that made the early church reach so many people and to do it so quickly. The idea here isn't so that we reach more people and do it so quickly. It's so that we understand what the church was about as this was happening. As people are coming to Christ and as the church is growing so dramatically, quickly, what is going on in the church? What is God doing in the church that is is giving the church this amazing grace, if you will, this help, this divine help? that it can go forward, and that it can literally have an impact that turns a world upside down, so to speak, all right? And these first Christians, if we are mindful of this, uh, they don't have all the advantages that you and I are accustomed to today. They don't, they, don't, they, they don't have what we would call necessities to make church growth work, all right? So, so they, don't, they don't have big buildings 
They don't have choirs, they don't have organs, they don't have pianos, they don't have praise bands and all these things. Uh, they don't have pews, they don't have Sunday school or kids ministry, they don't have parking lots, they don't have church buses. And I know what some of you are going, well, we don't have some of those things either. You know? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Because we're growing. We're growing. We don't, we don't necessarily fit that norm in our day. If you, if you take off everything on the church growth list, we don't fit everything, but we fit a lot of those things. But the early church didn't fit any of those things. They didn't have Christian TV back then or, or Christian bookstores. Uh, they didn't have Christian colleges and they didn't have seminaries and, and they didn't have parachurch ministries. Nevertheless, they prospered. They grew. And they grew in a very explosive kind of way that, that affected all the various sectors of the community and its life. And so I want us to look today at one, one sort of more particular area here. Um, and I want to get this sort of like, it's really quite a fascinating peek into the day-to-day life of the early church. Um, and so let's begin here by by taking this text here and sort of parsing it out just a little bit. I want to first point out something that is in, in verse 32. So, so if, we, if we start right there where David read this morning, there's a principle here that seems to guide the early church. It seems to have a, a, a huge guiding force here. And that was that all the believers, all right? And, and this passage points that out, I think, very well. It, 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 it makes it quite obvious. It says the full number, not a partial number, not some of them, but the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. In other words, they, they had such a dramatic unity, such an intense unity with each other. And this is a very simple statement, but it tells us something very deep about these believers in that they shared this very deep inner bond that joined them spiritually and emotionally in many ways, all right? So the, the, the Greek text really says that they were in heart and soul. Not that they were of one, but they were in heart and they were in soul together. And they, they were connected. They were, they were bonded. They were adhered to each other as the body of Christians in their day. And obviously they needed to have this kind of depth because of the tremendous persecution that was coming against them. But it wasn't about the persecution really that, that, that they made this bond with each other. It went quite deeper. And the proof of this sort of guiding principle, because you can have, we can, we can talk about core values in life church. We can talk about principles in life church. We can talk about beliefs in life church. We can talk about doctrine in life church. But we can walk away and it's all been talk. We can walk away and it's been theoretical. You know, we can believe it. We can believe it in the, in, in the depths of our heart on some level, like, a, like a, an intellectual level, a, a, a mindset. We can believe it. We can say yes to it. We can amen it. And we can do that with great passion. But we can walk away and never, ever live it. Never, ever see it in practical ways walked out in the body of Christ. But that's the amazing thing here. They have this principle that is identified in the book of Acts of their their being in one heart and one mind. And then they have this proof that is followed up in the same verse of Scripture. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Something very radical happened. Something shifted in these people here, and they shared everything they had. 
it's very easy for you and I even, I think, to say, well, my stuff is not my own, it's God's. But hold on to it with a relentless, tight grip that never allows it to leave our possession. So we're talking it, we even believe it on some level, we convince ourselves, but no one's going to pry our little fingers away from it. We're going to hold it right there. So there's a disconnect at some point, if that is the case. All right. But these believers shared this, this great bond together. And, and Luke here moves the, us from this sort of invisible kind of principle to this very visible sense of what the early church did. And that was if one had need, someone was able to meet that need. And what is mine is yours. And also what is yours is mine if it's truly needed. And this is, this is an amazing challenge for you and I as we sit here today. It doesn't set well with us. It doesn't, we don't know how to receive it. It's not, it's not j- I mean, some people hear this message and, 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 and they just go, bah, that's not for us, that was the early church, and dismiss it. It's very easily dismissed. But others wrestle with it because they know that, that somewhere, somehow, this is Right? but not knowing how to work through that. But if we move into verse 33 here and look at that, it says, I think it gives some insight here that we need to to grab a hold of, all right? And we talked about this particular component last Sunday when we talked about the church being full of the Spirit and the power of God. But it says in verse 33, immediately after this, this sort of principle proof thing is given to us, it says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. All right? With great power, the apostles continued to testify and much grace. This is what Nathan alluded to uh, in, his, in his closing gospel last week. All right? Much grace was upon them all. This grace can be very well translated. A divine help was upon them all. Folks, I'm not going to stand up here today and challenge you to give your possessions away and say you can do it on your own. Because a lot of you can't. We're we're not wired as Western church people to do that. But there is a divine help that can come to us and it can help us to exhibit extravagant generosity to one another and to the poor in the earth. And I believe that that help only comes from the Holy Spirit. It only comes from God. But this, this power that the apostles are demonstrating is getting the attention of the world. But this grace, this divine help, is upon all of them. And it says they preached with power and God blessed their preaching, giving them favor with the people. I believe that Life Church can live in a place of public favor. I believe that we can be a church of extravagant generosity, that we can find ways to give and to bless and to help our community and to help individuals flourish. And I believe that as we do that, we can attract the right kind of attention in a humble spirit that will allow us to have an impact within our community and it can draw attention to Jesus Christ. All right? And so, so I'm going to challenge you that you become a giver, 
that you become extravagant in your generosity and your giving. But I'm going to ask you to guard your heart so that that pride doesn't set in and you get puffed up about what you're doing. All right. So you always got to have the mirror in front of you that deflects all of the praise and stuff uh, away from you and up to Jesus. All right. But as Life Church, that's what we're called to do is to glorify God. All right. By making disciples in our neighborhood and beyond. But ultimately, it is to glorify God. All right. That's the first piece uh, of, of uh, our, our mission, okay, is to, is to glorify God. And so we do that in every way that we can. So what I'm telling you is that there's a guiding principle that we find here about, about generosity in the book of Acts, and it, it affects the church and makes the church great. The proof of that principle is what they did in that they died to themselves and let go of their possessions. And there was a great power at work in this dynamic as it's going on. And that is the Holy Spirit giving the grace that is necessary to everyone to be able to do this. All right. So giving isn't just for certain people and and not for others. Generosity isn't just for a few and not for the whole. It is everyone. All right. But then let's go a little further in this thing and look at what, what was the plan here and, and how did it kind of play out. Because this passage says to us, if you look at verse 34 and verse 35, that there is no needy person among them. Now I realize when we, when we start to use terms like needy that, that those terms get, get kind of relative and, uh, and they have a variety of applications to them. But it says there was no one who had a need among them. So at least as far as basic needs go, they're taken care of here. And from time to time, those who owned uh, property or land or or houses, they sold them, the scripture says, and they brought the money from the sale and they put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who has need here, all right? Now, now there are... It looks like about three groups of people here in, in these two verses. There are the rich defined as anyone who owned anything. So if you own anything today, folks, consider yourself rich, all right? Um, And then um, there are the apostles, the designated spiritual leaders in, in the church. And then there are the needy, defined as those too poor to own houses or or land. Uh, They don't have things, possessions. Uh, And when the rich saw that certain believers had needs among them, they went out and they, they did this voluntarily. We don't see a situation here where the apostles pull everybody together and say, okay, we have a problem and here's what you have to do because you have land or because you have possessions, you have to go and sell this. It's not mandated by the apostles here at this point, but it's, the need is evident. The need becomes aware to them in some way And they respond by going out and selling these possessions, these houses or or these land. And they bring the money in and they lay it at the apostles' feet in some manner. And the apostles then go through the process of distributing it out to the various needy believers uh, within the congregation. So it's a simple plan, really, to ensure that there would be no poverty in the context of the body of Christ. It's a powerful, powerful message here to our church today. All right? Now, what is the pattern? Is there, is there a pattern that we see here? Okay? So, 
um, let's look a little further. When you get to verse 36 and verse 37, it starts to demonstrate this, and we see the pattern in an individual's life. It says, Joseph, who is a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, all right? He sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. And Barnabas, who later became an associate of, of the apostle Paul, he actually worked with, with Paul later, is here introduced as a Levite who became a follower of Jesus. And once he became a follower of Jesus, what he valued and what he was after before um, didn't seem to be as valuable to him anymore. And the greater value was to take care of the needs of others who were now converted and they were brothers and sisters as well. All right? So we know that his conversion is genuine because he contributed from his own resources to meet the needs of poor Christians that he encountered or came in contact with or fellowshiped with in the church. Folks, this is an, this is an amazing challenge for us that we begin to look at life much differently than we ever have before. All right? This is, this is a simple sort of outline here of how we need to be responding to others in the body of Christ. And, and this is a wonderful way that we see the Spirit of God moving people away from their own sinfulness and to being more like the nature of Jesus and the character of Jesus. And I would, I would submit to you that when God puts it in your heart to give and to be generous, especially in some extravagant generosity, all right, in some way like that. When, when God is doing that, it isn't just about you giving, and it isn't just about someone receiving, but it is about God doing something in your heart that makes you more like Jesus. So this dynamic of generosity and giving isn't just about someone's need getting met. It is about the transformation of your life and you becoming more like Christ. And the extravagance of Jesus on the cross to die for you is exactly that. That you might have a personal transformation in your life. And you might become a child of God. And so this is a, a really brief commentary here, but we need to look at it. We need to, to, uh, to wrestle with this, all right? Because it's not natural to do what they did. Everything in the world teaches us to move in an opposite direction from what the early church did. Folks, the very essence of sin is for you to go your own way, do your own thing. Nothing is more natural or normal than for you and I to say, this is mine. And it comes very natural for some of you to say, this is mine, keep your hands off of it. And it's even natural for some of us to take what is ours and take it away and hide it or hoard it. Because it's mine. I worked for it. I earned it. I made it. Listen to all the eyes in there. Every one of those eyes moves you a step further and further away from the very character and the nature of the God 
who has extravagantly sent his son to die on the cross for you. What a price has been paid for you to know him, to be redeemed and to be brought back to him. And everything he is about is about making us more like him. For I to die that he may live through us. So this is, a, this is a huge challenge, but this is a piece of the puzzle that made the early church great was how they took care of one another, all right? So there's, there's, there's nothing in here that, that by nature would cause me or, or you probably uh, to do what the early church did. So why did they do it? What was, what was behind this? R- recall for a moment... The time in the scriptures when the rich young man visited Jesus and he asked him, he said, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's in the book of Matthew chapter 19. Uh, you can read that this afternoon. It's about verses 16 down into to like maybe 29, 30. Jesus says to him, uh, you should keep the commandments. And he's obviously a serious young man. And so he asked of Jesus, well, which ones? And Jesus listed several uh, and included the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man felt very good about it because he had kept all of those commandments from his youth. All right, So he had it. I mean, in his eyes, in his estimation, he, he had it. He, he's doing all right. You know, he's, he's, he's fitting the bill, so to speak. All right. Uh, and then he says, is there anything else? And here's the answer that Jesus gives to him. All right, I did all that. Good, I'm good now, but is there anything else? Is there because I want I want this to be you know a done deal, and in verse 21, all right. If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. Um, Haddon Robinson preached a sermon, and in in his sermon he said, um, it seems like in this passage you have the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, but it's definitely the wrong answer if you go by feeling. Doesn't, Doesn't feel like this is the right answer, you know. And it's not likely that any of you, I haven't, it's not likely that any of you have given uh, this answer that Jesus gave this young man to someone who's asked you about eternal life. If you a- ask me how to in- inherit eternal life, I'm going to say something about accepting Christ as your Savior. I may quote John 3.16, or I may go to the Romans road and, and look at Romans 5.8 and, 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 and begin a process there. But I won't quote Matthew 19-21. through 21. I never have. That, that's not been the natural inclination in me to go there when I'm leading someone to Jesus. Look at, the, look, look at that, that one little verse for a moment and look, just, just pick out the verbs. Go, sell, give, come, follow. Whoa. In other words, lay your life down for me. This is what Jesus is asking the young man. Now, now, we're quite happy with those last two words. Come, follow me. All right. Oh, Jesus, I just want to sit at your feet. I just want to bask. I just want to soak. I just want to be blessed. I come to you. All right. 
But we're not comfortable in connecting all of this following Jesus with selling our worldly goods and giving our money to the poor and doing these other sort of radical things. We don't, we don't like that, but we're, we're quite happy with the last two. Let's go a little bit further. Let's take a quick look um, at Luke chapter 12 which is, is a part of a repeat of Matthew chapter 6, really, of the Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, there's a wonderful promise. It says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father's been pleased to give you the kingdom. That's the perfect sort of picture of extravagant generosity. You're just a little sheep, but the Father is pleased to give you his kingdom. And that kingdom is rich. It would do you well to do a good word study on the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is. To understand what God is offering you, what God is giving to you. But this is, this is a powerful, powerful image here. You, the Father is pleased. He's overjoyed. He's happy. He's thrilled to give you the kingdom. And, and, and among other things, this is a promise that God has committed himself to provide for all of your needs all the time. As citizens of the kingdom, we rely on our heavenly Father to, to put all of heaven at our disposal. But before you start celebrating too much, look at the next verse which says, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. There it is again. Sell what you have and give your money to the poor. What does all this mean for you and I? I, I suggest to you today, I, I, I believe that Jesus is teaching us here that there's this, this, this intimate and deep connection between our possessions, our stuff, and, and the way we treat other people this relational thing that goes on between us in the fellowship of believers and our relationship with God, how we see God and how we stand with God. And that's, that's not a comfortable thought for many people because we prefer, folks, listen to this, we prefer to compartmentalize our faith where we can have our possessions, we cannot worry about anyone else, and we can still be in good standing with God. That's the way we like to do it, and that is not biblical. That is not what God is calling us to do. And we, we like to have our, our intimacy and our fellowship with God, but we like to control the, the, the small level of intimacy and fellowship we have with others and our sense of responsibility to those others that we are called to be in fellowship with. And so we do this kind of compartmentalization of all of these aspects of our faith so that we don't have to put them all together, integrate them and connect them together. But God is saying, no, you connect all the dots. Get, get, get it. It's one piece, if you will. All right? And, and, and I mentioned Matthew 19 and Luke 12 because I think those passages go a long way uh, towards helping us to understand Acts 4. Because evidently the early church took the words of Jesus very seriously and very literally. They followed him. 
They were, they were committed. They, they denied themselves and they were radical and they made the radical shifts and the radical changes. And, and I, I hear some of the argument that's going on inside of some of us right now and it shouts out loud. But we are more complicated people than they were in the early church. It's a more complicated situation today. And Western culture has, has, is different than culture in their day. I, I understand what you're, you're wrestling with, but at the end of the day, we still have to return to the text. We still have to come back. And we notice that, that, that Luke twice uses a very unusual expression to, to describe how actual giving was done. He, he, it's in verse 35 and again in verse 37. It's also in Acts chapter 5 as well in verse 2. But he says that, that we are told that the gifts were placed at the apostles' feet. We don't like this picture. Folks, what I'm challenging us today is not something that we are, we are willingly embracing in the church. And, and here's the problem. We're givers. And, and let me help you to understand. In life church, you are givers. You give phenomenally in life church. But what I'm challenging you is to a lifestyle that... that, that moves beyond us standing up on a Sunday morning and saying, hey, there's a village in Africa that is without water. What can we do? You know, are, are saying, hey, on this particular Sunday, we're, go- we're going to fast and we're going to put our, our pocket change in, in a bowl and we're going to bring it in and we're going we're gonna to buy this or buy that for, for kids who don't have coats or whatever, or things like that. I mean, I hope that we're going to do some wonderful things between now and Christmas as a church that shows extravagant generosity. And we're going to bring a couple of things to your attention that we hope you will do. But I'm talking about a lifestyle. I'm talking about no one bringing anything to mind from the podium. I'm talking about you hearing a need and God saying, you can do this. You can take care of it. This one's yours. And you do not hesitate to pull from your resources. And there's no evaluation of, well, if I do that, I can't have this, or I'll have to postpone buying that, or that's not in my budget, so that's going to pull me really tight. It's a need, and I, I have. Therefore, I can meet. There's one commentator that writes about all of this sort of process of bringing this to the apostles feet and laying it down and and he suggests that the apostles sat on a platform while uh, the early church members brought their gifts forward and literally placed them uh, at the feet of the apostles Um, it's a similar idea when paul says that that he learned at the feet of one of the great teachers you know these teachers probably sat in chairs or were on a, a little riser of some sort, maybe something not much different from this here, you know, and they sat around the, the, the teacher's feet and, and they received the teaching. Um, you know, when I read stuff like that, I, it bothers me. It's like I would consider myself as a spiritual leader in life church who can help direct how we give and how we uh, administrate and all of that but I, I'm, I don't feel comfortable with the idea of you know 
you all coming and putting money at my feet. I don't like that picture very much. It's weird. It's just weird, you know. Well, here's the problem. With that sounding weird to you and I, this, this whole idea of placing gifts at the, at the apostles' feet, it just, it's just so foreign to us. Um, it, it, it does imply a very public offering as well, and that makes us uncomfortable here. You know, but I, I, I've seen this done, and I've seen it done in, in places where it, it was beautiful. You know, several times in Brazil I've seen this done. And they had a need, and they called to everyone. And the amazing thing is it was the leaders of the church who jumped up first with their gifts and, and came dancing down to the big blue box and put their gifts in first. But all the other church came up, people came, and, and they followed, and, and they did that. And, and, and it was, it was a, a beautiful thing. And this idea of, of placing the money at the apostles' feet, as we see here, I, I think it suggests several things. One is that it does suggest some confidence in the leadership. And I'll tell you what, I have utmost confidence in the leadership of Life Church, our elders. Our elders make good financial decisions, wise decisions. Um, and and um, I, I, I trust them. And so, so for me, that makes sense that I can trust them with my giving. Um, but I think it also speaks to, to the, the, the body of Christ having a real sensitivity to needs. And I think that's a place where we as God's people can be honed, is that we can develop this sort of spiritual sensitivity to the needs that are around us. Because it says that these people, they made their offerings from time to time as specific needs arose. And I think there's a, there's a sense here also of, of genuine sacrifice for others. They, they sold land and houses, for crying out loud. This isn't like, well, let me go home and, and you know, move the bed or, and see if there's any change that fell underneath or something like that, you know. But this is, this is a sense of, this is a huge possession, yes, but I don't need this. And, and, and this, this is the case of, of the example that I gave to you. He had a parcel of land that was, that was outside of Jerusalem, apparently, and he sold it. He was from Cyprus originally, uh, and he was a Levite. Um, but he had this piece of land, and, uh, and, he, and he sold it and brought, brought the money forward. But it also, I think, speaks of personal involvement, that you and I are getting involved in the right kind of way, in a healthy kind of way, um, with, with other people and with the leadership of the church. And this is a dynamic that sort of brings us all together. And I think it's really fascinating to see all of this here, all right? And, and, and you know, you'll hear a number. This is what's so fascinating to me about studying this was that I, 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 every commentator that I read uh, made note that we, this is, this is a note now, okay, but it was always noted now, having described it and talked about it and commented on it, the note is we are... This, we are not under obligation to follow this passage literally. <laughs> Every one of them said this. So this is a little, little asterisk, you know. We are, we are not under obligation here to, to follow this. And, and, and there are those out there, folks, who would even suggest that the early church made a mistake in this practice and, and would recommend not sharing your personal resources with others. But I don't see any evidence of that in the text at all, Okay? And I agree that what happened in Jerusalem and what I'm talking to you about today uh, is not a binding pattern for all time. 
But I believe that the underlying principle remains today. And, and sometimes I'm afraid that we can interpret um, and, and, and get excuses to kind of weasel out of the true meaning of a biblical text. And we can, we can kind of dumb it down a bit or we can kind of dilute it in some way. And I'm going to challenge us that we not do that here in this particular case. I believe that you don't have to do what they did the way they did it. But I would suggest that we do have to find a way to do it on our own and do what they did. And that means that we become extravagantly generous. The principle remains. The application can vary from church to church and person to person. And I'm not expecting us to do what another church does or another church to do what we do. But what I am saying is that there are some things that we need to think about right now. And we need to let God become great in life church through giving and through our generosity. And so I'm going to ask you to, to let's sort of like stand back and consider this passage. And there, there are four things here that I'd like to leave you with today that, that I think are, are real marks, uh, are real implications for us in Life Church. Number one is that there is true unity here, and it's a central mark of God's work in a great local church. True unity is happening here among these people, all right? Uh, and honestly, folks, in recent years, I, I've come to see unity as a precious gift from God. Um, and um, th- this world finds unity in the body of Christ, I think, an unusual thing. When you find a group of people who truly love each other and they've covenanted to stay together for the long haul, that's an amazing thing. When you find that kind of love in the local church, you've you got to know it's come from God. And I can tell you this, I've never experienced the kind of covenant love that I have experienced in this church in this season of its life. You as a people, you, you are loving each other, you're caring for each other. We're trying to get this right. And I think this is one of the key pieces of what God wants to continue to do and wants to see flourish in life church is our unity and our love for each other. And that unity, the second, second thing I want to say or I want you to think about is that, that unity is seen by the way we treat each other. It's not seen by the programs we have or even what we accomplish, even though people will say, look at what that church did. People don't understand the depths of unity that way. What they, what they see when they see us helping each other and loving each other on this deeper level is they see an unbelievable unity that they are not familiar with that they don't even necessarily understand. It's the mark that an unbeliever can recognize, even if they can't understand our, our sort of complicated doctrinal formulations and stuff, all right? If, if, they, if they come in and they don't understand a thing I say, if I confuse them, they can turn around and see you loving each other, they'll get it. They'll, they'll, they'll get it right there, all right? The early church, they, di- they didn't just talk about unity. They practiced it on this deeper level of sharing personal possessions. The third thing that I would ask you to think about is that the world responds when our message is accompanied by this sort of visible love. All right? And, and, and I think that's, that's explained in verse 33. It's precisely because there was such a deep and visible unity that's spoken about in verse 32 that we see the, the apostles experiencing this great power and this ability to preach the gospel 
Because not only are they preaching the gospel, but then the gospel is being affirmed and played out in the generosity of the people in the body. Okay? It's unfortunate when, when churches can't work together, but it's even more unfortunate when a church can't work together. And, and what I would say to you, Life Church, is you work together. We work together. We have a tremendous unity here. And what I want to say to you today is let's preserve it. Let's not let anything happen that would any way destroy our unity and our intimacy together. And let's build on that unity. Let's build it through extravagant generosity with one another and with others. All right? The fourth thing I want you to, to, to be mindful of here today is that, that sharing with the needy is a primary sign of God's grace at work. Do you want to know if grace is upon us? Then we ought to see some work and some help with, with the poor and the needy. All right? And this is a, a central truth of all of the Scripture, not just our text today. The, the first Christians, folks, they actually considered it absolutely scandalous that anyone among them would live in poverty, that any one of them would have needs that were not met. All right? And they determined to do whatever it took to help their, their less fortunate brothers and sisters. All right? And... and I think that this fulfills the, the very spirit of the command that, that God has given to the rich young ruler and his admonition to sell whatever you have and, and give that money to the poor. Eugene Peterson in the message translates part of verse 32. He says, no one said, this is mine, you can't have it. No one said, this is mine, you can't have it. Now I realize again, that's very contrary to the normal way that that. Most people look at their possessions. But there's this great transformation in values that is taking place here. And this is what I, I really want to leave you with, and it's what we're getting down to here. As you consider these things that I threw out at you today, um, what, what should we take away from this today? Um, and I believe that we can make some application here. We, here here's the first thing that you and I, at, at corporate body, we need to, we need to, to take here. This is our application, all right? We've got to preach the gospel because it alone has life-changing power. We never move away from it. We never... This is what... They had the power to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's core and central to everything, all right? This is always the place we begin. There is no substitute for this place. We're going to give a straightforward declaration of the truth. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 reminds us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation unto everyone who will believe. And so we stand on that. So in making this application of extravagant generosity, the first thing we give is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right? We, we share and we preach the good news. The second thing is I believe we've got to pray to be changed by this gospel we preach. All right? If we preach this gospel of Jesus Christ, but we are not willing to give, if we're not willing to be extravagant in our giving, but we preach an extravagant God, something is wrong. That's not congruent. There's a disconnect there. We've got to follow this just like night follows day. All right? Our actions have to follow our preaching. And so as a church, we've got to legitimately be those people who, who allow our words to sort of like penetrate, like, like, like push in, press into our own selfishness and transform us. 
Because if we don't change, we cannot continue to preach change to someone else. And so this is very challenging for us, all right? So we've got to take our own words to heart. We've got to do something about this. We've got to be willing to make this change, all right? And then the third thing, as far as application goes, is we, we've got to demonstrate that change by the way we handle our possessions. We've, we've got to, to remember the rich young fool. We've got to remember uh, the, the rich young ruler. We've got to remember these places where, where God speaks and God challenges the possessions of someone and, and understand that a sovereign God is saying, let it go. Let it go. All right. How many of you in here have a cell phone or a watch? Take your cell phone out or take your watch off and put it in front of you for just a second. All right. Hold it in your hand. If you don't have either of these, if someone else has one and you have need, maybe they'll give you theirs, okay? How about you just sit close to each other and you can share? Your phone, all right? It represents time. This is your phone. For a moment, it's going to represent your time. By that, I mean the time that God has given you, your life. How many of you have some keys? Pull out your keys. Hold them in your hand. Wow, you became a really noisy group of people there for a moment. Maybe you don't have car keys. Maybe you have a key to your house something else keys represent possessions the things that you own you're the only one that can unlock those possessions so your time your possessions how many of you are willing to say you know what I understand my time is not my own I am here because God has allowed me to be here. My possessions are not my own, though I hold them in my hand. And I need to unlock them and let go of them. And how many of you are willing to say, God, as a part of this body, as is your son or your daughter, today I want to give you my life, my time. And I want to give you my possessions. And I'm going to lay them at your feet. I'm not going to ask you to come up here and throw your keys and your phones in the altar, okay? But I'm going to ask you to, to lay them before the Lord in some sort of symbolic way for just a moment something that's tangible enough that the Spirit of God could remind you of it down the road somewhere when He's speaking to you to give some extravagant way and you're rationalizing why you can't. I want Him to be able to bring you back to this moment and you can see your phone and you can see your keys and you can see your hand laying them down and letting go of them. Because 
the Word of God says, present yourself a living sacrifice. It's your reasonable act of worship. I want to pray for you. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you're comfortable doing that. Father, in the name of Jesus, we, uh, we are an undone people in many ways because your word confronts us. We often find ourselves not measuring up. Your word says that great grace was upon them all, divine help. What we cannot do, you do for us. What we cannot in our own strength and in our own flesh accomplish, you can, by divine grace, accomplish. So I pray for that measure of grace to rest upon life, church, and every person who is in here today. And I pray for every one of us to be able to lay our time, our life, and our possessions before your feet and release them to you. Take them, Father, and use them for your glory and for your honor. Work through us as your people, a holy people, a righteous people, an obedient people, a sacrificing and giving people. And I pray that you will get glory in everything that you call us to do. And I pray that our extravagant giving would draw attention to the extravagant gift of Christ on the cross who did for us what we could not do for ourselves and died for our sins and rose again that we might have eternal life. Let it be so. Bless your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Kayla? Is Kayla here? There you are. <laughs> As Pastor Bill has said, we have this generous God, and maybe you don't understand what that generosity means, but he's a God who gave up his only son. Um, we have this generous God in Jesus who came to earth. He came to a broken place and lived among broken people. Um, he experienced the sin of others and the way that they interacted with him, yet he chose to come and lovingly be with these people. He's a God who chose death um, so that we could have life in him. And his generosity doesn't just end with his death on the cross, but he rose from the dead. And he is coming back because he loves us that much. He is that generous to not only be with us for a season, to be with his people for a season, but to be with his people for eternity. And so Jesus is going to return. He's going to set the world straight. And we will be able to experience life with him for forever. And that's what true generosity is. And when we grasp onto the generosity of our God toward us, it's so difficult to not want to extend that generosity toward one another. And so um, I'll invite the prayer team up right now. And if you want to come up and pray with them, um, just about what it means to be generous. If you want to pray about understanding more of the generosity of God, they're available to you. Um, other than that, um, you are quietly dismissed. Um, if you could just...
leave quietly for people who want to continue to think or pray or come up and talk with the prayer team. That would be great. So thank you. Have a good day.